Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your co-host Cameron Ivy, and with me, as always, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how you doing today? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. It's another week. It's another um, week. It's not Friday, so we're not recording on Fridays no. like we normally do. We are closer to Friday. Friday in the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, I. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends, because then. That's We're closer true. to Sunday too, and then that's just when it recycles. True. Um, so either way, either way, either we're way. all screwed. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Well, if well, you look at it that way, but it's good to anyways, yeah. <laughs> we have a really special guest today. Um, he is the former Snapchat chief security officer, and he's the founder, co-founder, and CEO of Terra True. It is Jad Brutros. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Yeah, welcome. Cameron and Gabe, it's such a pleasure to be on your show. Thank right you. On. The pleasure is ours. Hey, look, let's kick this off the way we do with all of our guests. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, so I am an engineer by profession, and I've been working in tech for um, well over 20 years. Um, I, I joined Google, um, back, this is back in 2004, as one of the first 10 security engineers at Google. So I got this incredible opportunity with a very talented colleague at the time to create the team at Google that did security reviews for all of Google's products. I had the chance to build it, lead it, grow it, really work with thousands of developers on implementing a security process within Google that helped keep the the products safe, essentially, for all of its users, and uh, to uh, keep the developers working towards constantly raising the security bar. Really loved that work. I stayed at Google for almost 10 years, um, wore a few different hats along the way. And then one day, uh, Snapchat was in the news. Um, It made it to CNN's homepage. They had a security issue and... uh, didn't handle it necessarily very well. So a few weeks later, uh, they reached out to want to start a security team. And I left Google, joined Snap, um, and I was the first hire in, in security. And I got the responsibility to build an organization for all of security, for privacy engineering, as well as spam and abuse. And I sort of did that for three and a half years, a little bit more. Um, really sort of very exciting opportunities and uh, getting to do some things that um, mattered a lot and uh, sort of um, helped to continue to form my own career in those spaces. And then when one day sort of I had built this organization of over 100 engineers in those spaces, I just decided to take a sabbatical. This was the very first time in my career that I ever do that. And Really, it helped me gain a new perspective on sort of what to do next. 
spent a little bit of time thinking about what are some ideas that speak to me as an engineer, but also as someone who's incredibly passionate about security and privacy. And this is where the idea for TerraTrue came along. And I was very fortunate because um, the, the former general counsel at SNAP had left before me. And when I talked to him about the idea for TerraTrue, he said, let's do it. And we, we founded it together. And now it's been three and a half, four years. And I can possibly just say a few words about TerraTrue just if, yeah. for the listener. So, um, we, we built at TerraTrue a platform that really empowers um, organizations to build privacy and security into everything they do. Uh, this platform is very collaborative. It's designed to scale. It's intuitive. And it essentially helps organizations build products more safely for privacy, for security. It distills privacy laws into very actionable recommendations, generates risk scores, builds data maps, privacy assessments, and helps organizations collaborate towards understanding risk, solving for risk before they launch features. And all of that really with the intent of enabling organizations to continue their speed of innovation um, and yet launch more safely functionality products and services. So we, we were very excited. We've been sort of growing in momentum, um, establishing a strong customer base and uh, still early stages, but a lot to look forward to. I have so many questions and I know Gabe so, does so I'm going to let you go first. Look, I'm going to let you go first. As I tend to do for anyone who's kept score <laughs> at home, my questions don't always seem to come out of what you think they might based on what you said. But something That's you said, <laughs> something you said really stood out to me. Um, your background in particular, you've been an engineer. You are an engineer. Forget Ben, you are an engineer. You're an engineer by trade, you're an engineer spirit and heart, which is great. I love talking to problem solving people. Um, Builders are some of my favorite people. Breakers are also some of my favorite people. But builders, I love a good builder. But you also mentioned kind of that career path and the different stages different organizations were in when you joined them and their needs. And I've very recently been exploring the following. How specific roles of problem solvers in particular change based on the stage the organization is in? I won't get into why I'm, I'm digging into this, but let me, let me reframe that a, a little bit more. When you are the technical founder of an organization, right? Like there's, there's some things you need to do when you're pre-product, like you haven't quite created a product at all yet. And then you've got a product and now you're pre-revenue, right? Like, and you're, you're doing those things and you may have now taken in your first monies and now you're in seed phase and then you get A, B, maybe C, maybe exits, whatever, right? Uh, maybe go public. But at each of those phases, as you're solving for these problems, you kind of have these different responsibilities, like these different things you need to do. I will give you the one that I'm most intimately familiar with myself, right? Like as a product person, and you're, I can't imagine that you don't fall into this category to some degree. You probably wear the hat of product person at your company as the lead engineer, right? Um, you know, pre-product, you're, you're defining the product vision. You're, you're defining the MVP. By the time you're pre-revenue, now you're really kind of dialing in the product strategy, you're acquiring users, you get the seed phase, right? Like you're iterating on all those things, blah, blah, blah. Like, what does that look like for a security and privacy person? When you first join a company like Snap, that like you are the first security person in the door, there's nothing. 
but they are post product. So you don't get the opportunity to come in and go, Hey, we should, we should architect things like this, this, and the other, right? Like our friend Nishant was on the show and he's, he's the head of, of privacy engineering over at Uber. And so we talk a lot about, right? You know, how you, you implement those types of practices into the solutions you're building, but as the guy in the other end of that, but now, now you're the engineer in the seat to do both. You're both the guy building it and you're the privacy and security guy. So what do you start doing before you even have a product that takes that into consideration so you can help others? And then how does that change as you progress along your organization's journey, right? By the time you get to Snapchat, now they're, by the time you got there, they, they were probably in their A, B, C round somewhere there, right? They were definitely post money though, right? Like, and so the mission is different from a privacy and security perspective. But let me shut up and you tell me more. <laughs> no, Gabe, you're you're absolutely right. Um, the the thing with founding a, a, a startup is that you you have to accept the fact that your role is constantly evolving. It's never the same. So just to give you a quick sense of that, when um, when I started at Terra Two, I was the developer. That's basically what it meant, really, to found the company. Um, in fact, even more so, I've always been a backend engineer. But front end and uh, wasn't necessarily my thing. But however, you had to learn it. You have to learn it. And so I was taking these online tutorials when I kind of picked the framework to use, which at the time it seemed like React would be a good win. And I like so the I started. App. Yeah, absolutely. I started learning it and applying it at the same time. So it was really cool because I would take one part of the course the first hour of the day and apply it for the rest of the day and keep evolving that. Of course, as the company scales, then you hire uh, developers who are much better at it than you. And nothing <laughs> makes me happier than to see that, right? To see all my code being thrown away, to see folks come in with a better perspective, a better way to think about it. But the same applies for any part of the org. And I kind of think as a founder in a way as doing the things that no one else wants to do or or has necessarily the expertise to do it. And your role as a founder is to constantly try to well-round the company so that you wear fewer hats and you bring in specialists where it does make sense and let them and delegate to them the role so that they can do it better with more passion. And But you're absolutely right. Product um, started early on sort of describing a little bit what we want to accomplish with Terra through what are the sort of the initial milestones? And then as we kept hiring, we had, and this is a pleasure to always watch, when you bring in folks that can contribute to that roadmap. For, exa for example, our head of privacy is a wonderful um, lawyer by training, but also has a very good entrepreneurial let mindset. Me, let me interrupt there. So you brought yeah. in a head of privacy early, right? You're still in the startup phase. Yeah. Um, it sounds like your post revenue. I don't want to get into details, right? Like that's not the, the yeah, important part of this conversation. Absolutely. But as someone who's building a, a an application that has to take privacy into concern from the start, because you're literally helping others build privacy into their applications. One of the first things I'm hearing you say you did was I went out and I hired a privacy person, even as a startup, right? Like you did that. Oh, absolutely. And it's someone that both myself and my co-founder, my co-founder was the general counsel at Snap. So he's no stranger to privacy or the application ah, yeah, of the law. Yeah. See, now you're cheating. You're cheating. You're cheating. You've got, <laughs> you've got GC on one side and you've got yourself as a, as a developer and a security person on the other side. That's good. <laughs> I, I can tell you it's a great combination. I mean, you often see 
startups founded by two tech folks. Um, and that works for sure, but sort of having that, um, a, a co-founder that complements my own skills. I think it helped us to do yeah. things that we wouldn't have been able to do individually and in a way that is very powerful. But from the beginning, one of the core use cases for us was to come up with a way to help organizations understand what the privacy laws means to their work in a way that is profound, powerful, very structured, so that they don't spend time reviewing and thinking through things we we give them. It's almost like an assistant to them. We help them do their jobs better with much more knowledge, much more information. And so having someone with that legal background who's consulted on privacy for a great part of their career, who can read the laws, GDPR, CCPA, now CPRA, and others, and help distill them into working yeah. code in a way. So I'm going to put some and words into your mouth. I'll put some words into your mouth because what I'm trying to yeah. do is I'm trying to paint a picture for my for my listeners, right? For our listeners here as to what that journey, that privacy journey looks like from early as you continue to make your way through the building of a company. Um, although many of the people in, that, that tune in probably work for organizations that already have established products, um, we're always adding new products, right? Like there's always something new to be added to the portfolio. And folks are in the startup space. There are 550,000 technology startups in the U.S. by my count a month ago. Don't ask me how I know that, but I do. <laughs> Roughly, give or take, give or take. I, I, I might be off by a couple. Um, and so you hired a privacy person and you already had counsel too. It's beautiful. And then... And then the next thing you did was you started educating folks as to the needs around that. Like you identified that as that being privacy being such a, an integral part to, well, what you do and sell, but in what you build that it necessary to, to have some component of, of knowledge sharing is, is kind of where I'm heading with this. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's very important. But first we had to build the product. And so our uh, our first hire also was a developer and someone who can come in and start to you know pair up with me and develop with me and later on as we built, built that engineering team essentially offload more and more to that team to grow the product so that we can have something to talk about with with potential customers to show them how we think about privacy and that's been sort of we had a mission when we started the company to build this large product that would solve needs for organizations who want to do the right thing by privacy and security and don't necessarily know how to start, or they feel that their approaches today are just too ad hoc, they don't scale, they can't really keep growing them and implementing them and keep raising the bar. So they're Why? looking... Yeah, oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, no, so they're basically, we saw the need. That was one of the... Um, things that you know came up quickly to us at Snapchat is you know we were trying to build a very strong privacy program from the very beginning and we can talk more about why um and we did it but it came at the expense of a lot of hard work from a lot of folks and so the takeaway after leaving was can we do this better 
can we make it easier for organizations to think about privacy in a way that is more natural, that is more enabling, and that doesn't require them to make the same difficult trade-offs and decisions that we had to do. So when we started Teratru, we had that mission to help others do better without the costs that we incurred and we lived through in our own lives. I think you've answered what was going to be my next question. (laughs) Why this problem? Why did you choose this problem? I want to come back to it because I heard you say it, but, but only maybe in two sentences. So while you were at SNAP, the problem of solving for implementing pri- a privacy program, and I assume what you're referring to, but please keep me honest here, was also the technical components of that program, was so arduous that you decided there there was a better way to do this, and that's what you endeavored to do now. You're, you're absolutely right. And this is something that we saw both at Snapchat and I lived through for almost 10 years at Google, which is no matter how well-intentioned everyone is at an organization, and no matter how talented and smart and dedicated they are, there is an inherent friction everywhere between the developers and the product teams who want to push forward, innovate, execute, build strong, interesting products and features on one hand, and the privacy and security teams who are there to support them to make sure that those features and products are safe. On the other hand, no matter what you do, there is a tension there. And me having having that engineering background um, and as well as the passion for privacy and security, Teratu spoke to me. The problem we're solving spoke to me. It's something that is a win-win for an organization. It helps developers do their jobs better, more easily, without incurring as much friction and overhead. And it helps the security and privacy teams that are often overwhelmed and understaffed feel that they have a better voice and teams are not trying to circumvent them. They're not being informed too late in the process. And that's what spoke very, very much to me. I want to talk more about this problem. Um, We've had a lot of people on this show that are the founders of of, of privacy companies, et cetera. And they've all been great, but you're the first one to really talk about this friction problem between say developers and the rest of the business. Um, I won't pick just the product people. I mean, maybe I felt, I felt seen there. I felt a little seen when you said that. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but I want to touch a little more on this friction because really what you're driving at here, I think it's the heart of like all of the problems literally like so many of the problems software is eating the planet full stop i don't know how many people want to disagree with that but sure let them um and while they're disagreeing with me i will i will point to their pockets and go tell me more um but it's eating the planet right and and so the natural friction that's that already exists between software and me as a user and the privacy it creates like we see that playing out in the real world apple you know facebook it's just it's playing out in just gnarly ways and you're telling me that there's equally friction on the business side of that between the developers and the rest of the business in terms of being able to create the products and services that drive the business while protecting the privacy of the users, et cetera. And so where, where is the friction? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but you know, is it like they have to get things to market fast? And we're like, what, 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 where's the friction? What's driving this need? Yeah. 
I mean, you know, great question. And really, honestly, if if we were still in the era where organizations were releasing software once every year or every six months, maybe the friction would be diminished because then they would say, you know what, the last month before I release something, I'm going to get QA to test it. I'm going to get the security team to test it, privacy team to make sure it's all good. Maybe it worked way back then, but today companies are releasing often very frequently, smaller granularity, but they're constantly releasing software. How do you make sure that those new features that you're releasing are safe when you release them, not just after the fact? You need to have the process somehow integrate privacy and security into it and yet do it in a way that doesn't necessarily add a lot of delay because adding a lot of delay causes developers to get anxious, product teams to get anxious. They have deadlines, they have sort of commitments they want to comply with. But those privacy and security teams, first, they're very hard to find. They're completely overwhelmed, constantly jumping from review to another. But more importantly, it takes time for them to do a good job. And there is a strong incentive to sort of make them more rubber stamping. And that can, you know, that's, that can work in the short term, but it's not a way to build security well. So if you want them to do the job well, it takes longer. They have to spend more time reviewing code, thinking about it, testing it, breaking it, as you were saying, Gabe, all these sorts of things that take more time. And just to even know what they need to review becomes harder as organizations grow and scale because it's it becomes very important to understand what is new versus what was already reviewed and needs to be approved. And if you don't have a strong process to help you see all of that, it just becomes very, very difficult. So organizations, as they grow, they tend to, it just becomes more difficult for them to do all of those right things. And that's the problem that spoke to me. Now, never mind organizations that don't care as much. I mean, that's a very different proposition, right? At that point, security and privacy become a little bit more of a pure compliance function, check the box and do all of this. But from our experience working at, on MNA at Snapchat and Google, organizations generally want to do what is right by their users, by their own employees. And they just are overwhelming, overwhelmed with the process for doing all of these. How do you track thousands of reviews that need to happen a year and make sure you didn't forget any, make sure that they're happening before you actually deploy that software. All of that requires tooling process, but it also requires a bit of a cultural component too. Because if your privacy and security teams are isolated and they're decoupled from what engineers and product teams are working on, they may not hear about it until it's too late or flat out not hear about it until it's released. And so... That's where it becomes more important to bring them in early in the process. And that's what, you know, we are try- we're solving for at TerraTrue. You and I have like four hours of additional conversations <laughs> that, I'd li- that I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to insist we have even after this show is over. Maybe we, maybe we chop some of it up into to a new segment we've been working on, an unplug segment. Uh, maybe we just take some of it offline because you, you – I mean, you're speaking to a security guy turned product guy with 21 years under his, under his belt, right? So, like, I'm, I'm hearing everything you say, and I'm agreeing, like, wholeheartedly. I'm like, preach, 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 preach. But I'm also hearing a lot of the problems you're describing. And 
I'm thinking to myself, man, this is great. These are problems that I'm, I'm trying to, to solve in other ways, um, you know, in this corner and in that corner. And I know people that have similar problems uh, because, you know, fundamentally that what you just described at the end in process there where you know, you've got product people and engineers, you've got the builder teams working on things that might otherwise be disconnected from the privacy and security challenges that you're going to naturally introduce through code change. And I'll reference Nishant again, who is the author of um, Shameless Plug, um, data, data Privacy. He's a great guy, by the way. He's an awesome uh, dude. I've, awesome I've, dude. I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's well, awesome. And I read his book too. Yeah. I mean, great book. Great book. Great guy, yeah. Absolutely. Um, no, no one's really, I, I, you're the first one again, like no one's really trying to, to get at this, this part where there's that disconnect. Like, so again, Nishant's conversation in his book, et cetera, very focused on what the builders can do. But bridging that gap between the builders and the rest of the business seem, does seem to be a huge void, right? I, I can tell you just one I'm experiencing. But anyway, at this point, I'm, I'm literally just I'm preaching to the choir and I'm just, because ah, I'm, I'm with you. Again, look, I'm a security guy. I'm a product guy. I get it. I'm with you. Um, I don't know how we, we, we make it part, because you're right, it needs to be part of the culture shift. And I would argue it needs to be part of the broader shift of our in industries, like of the technology industries, right? Like not just security or privacy, but th those 550,000 new tech startups I just mentioned, like it has to be woven into their fabric from the start. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, you know, the, the notion of security by design, which is the idea that as you're building software, you're thinking about security implications early on at the ideation phase before, ideally, before you even start to write your first line of code and reason about those risks and defend against them before you build. That notion has now existed for almost 20 years. Uh, and companies have over time embraced it more and more and realized this is the right way to think about privacy. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it's certainly a critical component of it. There is now an equivalent approach to private uh, that is applied to the privacy field, and it's called privacy by design. And more and more lo uh, privacy laws are mandating it, that you think about privacy as you're building software. And so what started as we feel this is the right thing to do, that's how you get the most value for the effort as an organization, you are spending on privacy. Now it's increasingly mandated by privacy laws and organizations are realizing that they have to embrace it. You can't do privacy only after the fact. And that's what we've seen in the market already so far. There are vendors in that space that offer privacy solutions, but they are more after you deploy software, not so much before. And before is harder in a way because you have to get this buy-in from all areas of the business and agree on the process and the approach, but also it yields a lot more value and power. It saves developers time, product teams time. It saves the privacy engineer, the privacy lawyers time, and it gives them data that removes the human error, the inconsistency, the tedious amount of manual work. So anything, we called it this privacy shift left movement, which is the same concept, shifting left, bringing it early into the development lifecycle. We found it valuable in many other areas, like testing in general, QA, 
deployment, all of that. And we're bringing the same approach to security and privacy. So I'm going to shut up. Like we could talk shift and left all day long. I, uh, I used, I used to work at white hat security for a number of years in research and products. Also, um, again, I love my breakers as much as I love my builders. You, you're preaching my language. Cam, what are you doing over there, buddy? <laughs> Me? <laughs> Listen, I was already prepared. Once he started talking about his, his story and I could just see, like, oh, shit, I'm going to get some water. Dave's <laughs> mind just like, Everything was starting to connect. I was like, all right, I'll just sit back for a while. I know that I got some time. So, I, <laughs> um, so Jad, um, thinking about your, your time at Google um, gave me, first of all, I'm, I'm a silly, goofy person. So I think about the first thing that pops into my mind, because I didn't really know that part of, of, of your background, was the internship, uh, the movie with Vince Vaughn. And Owen Wilson. So number one, do you know them? Have you met them? Um, but uh, what, what, how old were you when you, you started at Google? Was it through an internship kind of thing or were, were you just hired on? Were, like, what was that like for you? And how old were you? Were you like, was this at a time when like Google was already huge and you were like jumping into this exciting thing let, let or was try, it something you were trying something about? else? Don't tell us your age. Tell me what operating system you were running. Um, and your favorite browser at the time. Oh, it's, 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 it's worse than that. I was spending my time actually, you know, learning Cisco's router oh, configuration and iOS. Are, yeah. And it was at the time where you had a lot of setup at home, running servers and all of that, which today I wouldn't think about doing. I was on Google's campus when the internship was filmed. I didn't meet those actors. Ah. It's a Great movie, but I, yeah. I have to say that I had a tremendous experience hosting an intern that now sort of surpassed me in their potential for doing amazing work. She is incredible. Wow. She runs now a very large part of Google Chrome within Google. And so now at TerraTrue, even though we're very, very small, I've been encouraging those internship programs because really they can do things that are amazing and sort of develop and you feel you're always attached to their lives. And uh, I just, I just love yeah. the idea. How that's fascinating. How, how realistic was that movie <laughs> like compared to when they actually do do it? Not, not the whole thing, but just the idea of when they actually do have internships. Cause I know it's probably really hard to get into. Um, but is that kind of, did it give us a, a kind of realistic Frame. Uh, I mean, this was a great movie, but certainly it's not exactly meant to be factual. Right. Um, the I think internships generally the barrier to having an intern is lower than hiring a full time person because it's a three month right. work. It's still you still go through a number of interviews and um, and make sure that there is that connection between who is going to mentor the intern and the intern themselves to make sure that it is a win-win situation. I mean, those organizations care deeply about making sure that at the end of an internship, uh, the intern feels that they've learned something new, they've contributed in really awesome ways. So you want that program mm -hmm. to, to help grow individuals and feel, make them connected so that they can come back again. And that part is really resonant. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling when 
you bring in someone who may not have expected it and give them amazing projects and then see them do incredible work uh, when things do yeah. work out. But just to kind of around your question on sort of how I got into Google, I'll just mention this. Um, now things have changed and there are more ways to get into security. But for me, I was at a startup at the height of the dot-com bubble. And this startup turns out to have a lot of security ramifications in the work they're doing. Because basically, they collected your usernames and passwords for all the accounts you had and showed you information on one single page. So they really could do so much damage to you if they mishandled your credentials. And one day, I think the company wanted to improve the way it protected data both internally and as it sent them out and it uh, at, in transit, in reporting, in backups, in all those sorts of things. And I had taken just one cryptography course during my master's. And that was enough for the company to say, you know what, Jad, go do this. You're going to add all of those security protections to our code base. And that's it. I, I got hooked instantly. It was amazing. And from then on, it's penetration tests. It's sitting in with external consultants. It's starting to build that. And fast forward mm-hmm. a few years, I joined Google as one of the security uh, security team. And nightmare scenario happened <laughs> last year when someone from that startup from 20 years ago reached out to me and said, I've never met them before. And they said, Judd, there is still some of your code that is running still and protecting some of the data we have. And that's really for someone who was dabbing into security code. You just don't want to hear that 20 years later, it's still running, which, which made it fu- very funny, but good to know. Wow. That's, that is funny. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm certain that there's, there's some code out there that I will not take credit for. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the state of the art on writing, you know, protection software for, that uses crypto algorithms has changed so much that just the notion mm-hmm. that some of it is still running after all this time is unbearable. But I'm sure they sort of they made the right decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm certain they have. Yeah. So it's also fascinating too when you got the opportunity for for jumping into Snapchat to to build up that program. Um, I want to kind of get your take on your experience. Like, how did that, how did you, where, like, you must have been 10 years at Google. I mean, you were ready for this, I'm sure. You were like, let's go. And Snapchat at the time was probably, it, it blew up so quickly as a company. So they didn't have anything, it sounded like, which is, which is what kind of happens with these, these applications nowadays. They just take off and then they need to, like, they got all this money and they need to actually provide security and privacy. And like, what, what was going through your mind when you, you got this opportunity? Was it something you got reached out to for, or um, like, how did that go? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the um, sort of after I had heard on about Snapchat from CNN's homepage, I got intrigued because they had some issues in areas that I've worked at at Google and made sure to to defend against. So my curiosity was there. And by the way, every social network that gets created suffers from the same problems. It's like history doesn't learn from from itself. And right. um, um, and uh, so they recognized, and to their own credit, and they, the company in general was extremely supportive 
of doing the right thing by security and privacy. They recognized that it was time to build a team. Mind you, they were still very small, only 40 employees or so but when I was being oh, wow. interviewed. And just during that interview process, I already poked around a little bit with their with their support um, and found a few things. So I kind of knew what to expect. But for me, it was this major curiosity because this was um, an app that grew very, very fast, that had a huge amount mm -hmm. of end users, and that was cloud native, which made it super interesting. They were running on Google Cloud. And I worked for 10 years at Google, but never used Google Cloud. So I was very, very intrigued about what are the problems that startups face today in security? How much of a challenge is it? And what can we do about them? And we learned a ton about it. I mean, even yeah. cloud providers at the time, they didn't have the robust security features that they do today. They've evolved considerably. And so even when we wanted to do some things that were more advanced, sometimes it just wasn't capable or wasn't supported by cloud providers. So it was a lot of learning and growing and feeling that the internet was growing yeah. at the same time. But also to to Snap's credit, they were incredibly supportive from the head of engineering to the CEO to everyone else. And that made it a more, of course, more interesting experience as well. Yeah. And then, you know, those two steps, you know, 10 years and then three and a half, I think, at Snapchat built, uh, you know, you got that that opportunity for Terra True. Um, it's just amazing when you look at that, that kind of, you know, those chapters in your, in your career and how it's brought you to something that you're super passionate about and that you get to run with, with somebody that you worked with a long time ago, that you guys have that trust. And it's just amazing. It's amazing to hear those kind of stories. Um, appreciate you kind of going into that. Of course. Thank you. I mean, it's been uh, so far an unbelievable ride and, and um, one that just really speaks to all the, uh, to our mission, which is to democratize privacy, to make it easier for organizations to do mm -hmm. it. And we connect with that cause because we've, we've met a lot of companies that really want to do the right thing and they just don't know how. And that's very sad state yeah. of things today. You're a startup. You have a lot yeah. to be thinking about to build the, your products and to build your customer base. And when you try to think about security and privacy, it's overwhelming. The laws for privacy are changing all the time. They're only getting more, more complex and more powerful. You need to build more awareness for them. But also hiring is so difficult for those mm -hmm. fields. So how do you even start when you don't have someone to guide you through? Funnily enough, even organizations that are bigger um, struggle sometimes in hiring the right leadership for those roles because it's just hard to know what to interview them for and how to think about who can both grow the security team and the privacy team, but also enable the business. And that's the part that over mm -hmm. time I got excited about how to be an enabler for the business, how to make it so when you have strong privacy and security, not only does it help you to launch more safely, but it actually helps you build products that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. That really is super powerful, very, very compelling to, to me. Yeah, very much. I guess we can use the, the Snapchat as an example or we can use it for Terra True. 
but this question is always usually asked for most of our our guests because it's interesting to see your take and and your thought process behind this. But it's simple question: if you only had, let's say, you're going into Terra True and you only had a hundred dollar budget to actually spend on your security or privacy program, where would you start with that hundred dollars? <laughs> That's, that's a great question. And honestly, a few years ago, I would have responded possibly with something more tactical, something that immediately yields a stronger posture for privacy or security, even with that limited budget. But today, I, I start to think more and more about how important it is for privacy and security to be connected with an organization, all the different teams within an organization. When, when privacy and security function in isolation, it's doomed to fail. And I've seen enough experiences in my career where it was a failure. And so the way I, I would approach this is to think about the notion, and I didn't invent this, the, but the notion of privacy and security champions, which is to say, get a few employees within different teams in your organization that touch on privacy and security. For example, um, you have finance sees the contracts that are coming in for all your vendors and vendors introduce privacy and security risk. So try to find a contact there, find contacts within engineering, feature teams and infrastructure, start to build relationships with them. With HR, it's also the same thing for internal tooling. And maybe with those $100, you can treat them to a lunch. That's it. Mm -hmm. Just evangelize and um, how you want to build relationships with them for collaboration and start to implement the seeds of a good privacy and security culture in your organization. Usually, folks across the org, when you talk to them and you convince them about why we need cooperation. We need collaboration. We need to work together for these. It, they, they understand and they're very willing to help. So mm -hmm. start to build those relationships. The, the reason I say that is particularly when it's a new startup, when it's a smaller company, you need the help of others to accomplish anything. You cannot accomplish anything mm -hmm. on your own. And so I would start with this championing part where you have a bit of ears, um, and eyes across different teams that help you know when there is something new that requires scrutiny and work with you towards um, mitigating risks that are introduced. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that you went with the, the, the people yeah. um, instead of some kind of product or putting money to it because people is where that's the most important thing, especially have, if you have good people, um, and getting them to buy into what, what your vision is. Um, really, it makes a big difference. And generally, those companies that are growing, they're trying hard to attract good talent. And everyone feels connected to doing what is right by the company. Um, so just you know, encouraging those collaborations is very powerful. I've had cases in my own career where people were much more opposed to any change. And as a result of that, they just put walls and barriers everywhere where they could just to make security mm -hmm. and privacy move away. And that's just not a healthy approach. Agreed. It's, I mean, I'm sure you saw a lot of that in uh, the engineering world. 
Um, <laughs> we had, uh, I had one example, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I won't mention the, the, the name of the company, but it was a very, very large one. Sure. And I happened to be reviewing some code from our own team. This is our own team of five engineers to do something that I needed to build on. And I found a vulnerability that was very, very severe. And so I went to the engineer and I said, look, there is this serious critical bug that I just found in the code. It doesn't take much to fix it, but I think, you know, if you don't mind fixing it. And he said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to do anything. Like, why? There is no good reason. They just like, no, I don't want to help. It's not your job to be looking for security bugs. In all fairness, it wasn't. I just found it without necessarily looking for and uh, they just refused. And it was so weird of a situation. Ultimately, after several weeks of trying to convince this person, I ultimately filed a bug with that company's security team. And I said, there is a critical flaw. And then that team came to the developer and said, you must fix it. And it took about a month. And it was so unnecessary and so futile and so silly. That tells me when that culture is not there, and um, it just creates a lot of problems and it just doesn't help towards an organization that is always thinking about its users and protecting them. So those kinds of situations oh. I want to avoid at all costs for everyone because they're just not healthy. Some disagreement is totally fair, right? You can have developers that say, yeah. no, you don't understand the risk or you're wrong. It's not exploitable. Anything like that, that's very much all, all well and good. Within but reason, someone yeah. saying, I don't want to fix it because it came from you and I don't have a mandate to fix your issues, that just felt childish. That's a culture issue for sure. That, yeah, exactly. that someone doesn't see that and think to themselves, this issue could potentially harm the organization, the users. Um, it, it could be a service that your own family members run in harms of that they that they would completely separate those things mentally and emotionally is a culture problem for sure. Those things are hard to fix. Technology is not going to get that in line. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, that's what I like also about these fields, privacy and security, is that ultimately you work in them long enough, you develop this sense of kindred and um, empathy towards users. You're advocating for it mm -hmm. all the time. And it's just a beautiful feeling, right? When those teams are good, they deeply care about end users, whether it's employees, business partners, or consumers. But those teams can be very, very strong advocates. And just that's sort of how you get in passionate about privacy and passionate about security mm -hmm. when you see that level of enthusiasm. I'm with you. Agreed. That is so true. It's It's crazy. When it comes to, I guess, just to get your take before we go to the last segment, but is with security and privacy and the way that it's going, what, I would love to hear some of your predictions, um, you know, for 2023 and beyond. Where, where do you think, first of all, do you like the direction that we're actually heading in? If not, where would you like us to be heading as a, um, well, not an organization, but as as a whole, like uh, in security species. and privacy. <laughs> yeah, as a species, yes. Yes, we are species. Honestly, it's a, it's a <laughs> very overloaded question, but a fascinating one. Yes. And, um, you know, like I've been in security for so long. I've seen it grow. 
you have a giant ecosystem of vendors trying to solve for specific problems. You still have venture capitalists that are hoping for this one product that you can put into your organization and suddenly it makes you immune to all some, uh, all sorts of risks. And that's utopia. It can't exist. It won't exist. Um, the problem I have today with security, as much as we're seeing improvements across the board, is that some of it also is it's just drowning under its own weight. And it gives me a little bit of concern there. For example, just very silly example, the last few days I had to create some new accounts on on the web and the password complexities there is just going through the roof it's impossible to pick a password that meets all of those requirements it's starting to become so irritating i spent more than 10 minutes choosing different random ones and they weren't working and that feels to me like laziness it's a bit pushing onto end users things that you should do better um and also we're seeing you know it's it's just such a needed space today that the quality of certain vendors and offerings is also diminishing and you have worse experiences than you did five or ten years ago um but it's it's going to figure it out security is absolutely critical to everything the the, the space that is growing is privacy and that you see it and it, it feels a bit like patchwork of different laws today. Um, there was a call even just as early as yesterday with um, from Google about unifying a privacy law for the whole United States because everyone is seeing that different states having their own privacy laws is just not a sustainable practice. It adds complexity to anyone trying to build product. And so I'm hoping that we'll see as those laws have more teeth we're going to see better privacy programs coming in, better understanding of how organizations treat your data. But I also hope that over time they will become more consistent and you don't have to spend so much time trying to understand subtle nuances, that it will be clearer. Um, and for, for, for me personally, just in those last few years, I've definitely seen this notion of privacy by design become increasingly more important. And it doesn't solve all the problems, but it gives a better framework for organizations right. to do right by their users in a way that is more effective. And so when we think about this long-term, bringing in different stakeholders, your PMs, your engineers, your privacy lawyers, privacy experts, security folks, bringing them all together sort of virtually across the table to discuss the new features and products you're adding, I think that's a, just a wonderful space to be in. Yeah, great answer. No, that was great. You went you went into that very well. I appreciate that. Do you have anything that you want to bring up uh, before we go on to the the deep dark secrets <laughs> section? Uh -oh. <laughs> um, you know, maybe just one quick you know observation too. You know, as with with the mm -hmm. cloud, you know, cloud native companies companies embracing cloud over the last decade or so more and more it gave rise to this whole SaaS offering where you can outsource some parts of your product or your need deployment, all of that to other organizations. And it's, it's, it's a great feeling and more and more organizations are embracing having more vendors. Mm -hmm. It just makes it more efficient for you to focus on the things you care about. But at the same time, there is a bit of tax, um, security and privacy tax 
put on to those startups that are trying to build SaaS offerings. And, and mm-hmm. um, it gets a bit frustrating when you, uh, I've been experiencing a whole bunch of them myself. And when we want to do the right thing and we feel that there are obstacles artificially put on us because we're smaller and we have less leverage, it really annoys me a lot because we need to encourage this ecosystem better. So just to give you um, a bit of an example, um, sometimes there are security offerings that we don't have access to just because they're designed to be for very large organizations that can afford a minimum spend that is very, very high. Mm. So even though we want to implement some additional security features, we simply don't have access to them. They're not available to us. Other cases, we find issues and we report bugs and then we have to wait sometimes months, keep escalating for other companies to take us seriously because we're a smaller company. That's also frustrating at times. It just feels like there's so much emphasis being put on servicing the larger organizations that when it comes to smaller startups, they have to incur additional friction. And I'm hoping that you know, we'll all find a way to to work better together so that we can also enable organizations, small and large, to do the right thing more easily. And we're not seeing that yet today. So that's, that's just it. I also expect cloud providers to get more and more into privacy. And they, they haven't necessarily done as much of that yet and look forward to seeing more of what they can do in those spaces. I agree. I think they've been waiting to see how this all plays out because they have so much sovereignty issues that, quite frankly, are still dangling in, in the wind. That's right. Yes. Have you have you tried the approach of slamming your fist on the desk and saying, do you realize who I am? I'm Jean Boutros. No, you need, you need that. Okay. It's, it's, it could work. It's through you <laughs> when we talk to them. And it's just, I understand why they have to provide higher quality of service to customers that pay more. But at the same time, of course. you know, like, should be thinking about an ecosystem that is thriving and to enable that to succeed and become larger. And I see a lot of obstacles along the way. And so we ultimately get sort of to a, an acceptable end result, but it takes a lot more fighting and pushing and convincing to get that hub to happen. We're seeing it with single mm-hmm. sign-on providers. We're trying to update our app on those stores and everything takes longer. And I'm sure that if we were a larger organization, that would have happened much, much more quickly too. So there is a lot Probably, of yeah. startups today. Oh yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, that's a great point. Which I think uh, some some of our listeners can relate to, um, very much so. Wow, that's I didn't expect that. That's really interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. That that's that gives me something to think about too. Because I, I, the way I think about it, the way you're putting it, is is um, you know, just because you're a smaller company doesn't mean that you're not as important. You're not carrying just as much of important data. And Maybe the opposite is even true, especially in in the app age. You know, when when Google first started and Snapchat, and th- there's there's a little bit of a perverse incentive almost. And feel free to to slap my hand. A little bit of a perverse incentive in the startup space for those types of of solutions. Where look, if a little bit of data gets leaked and it doesn't tank your organization, 
that's actually not bad. You just made front page of the New York Times, right? Um, <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting anyone is intentionally neglecting it. What I'm suggesting is that neglecting it when you're those folks sometimes has a positive outcome. Um, and, 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 you know, Cam's point is, you know, but when you're small in those things, like Google was relatively small when they had their first major leak that I knew of. Um, and look, I've been breaking systems long enough to know there were probably a few before that one. <laughs> so, yeah, no, these things are a thing. You know, the jury is still out on how much you suffer from reputational damage when something bad happens in the long run. But certainly if you have repeated situations where you're mishandling users' data, it has to impact your reputation. And ultimately, Does it? You know, it has to. I mean, at some point, you know, again, with the, the different privacy laws that have more teeth, with more yeah. awareness of those issues that are happening, um, with an increasing sentiment towards, you know, privacy being a fundamental human right. And I know. Um, wanting I need to protect that. It's, it's certainly moving in those directions. But yeah. um, also, I mean, you want to do the right thing, right? You don't want to work for an organization that ignores these things or, or actually mm -hmm. tries to leverage them in ways that it's just, it's just not healthy. Yeah. I'm, I, I need to be less cynical. I, it's just, it's hard. You know what it is? It's just hard to believe that some of those things, I like, I look, the fact that Facebook <laughs> still exists the way it does and people still use it the way they do. And I know they're using mm -hmm. losers, but like, it's wild for me to think that that's a thing. And, which is to say, like, it hasn't really affected their reputation the way I would expect. And again, a dyed-in-the-wool privacy guy, there's enough open data on public companies who have suffered some type of an incident, whether it be security or privacy. You know, you can see that stock take a dip, but man, that 48-month that chart sure doesn't seem really that well affected, does it, right? Like, it just just doesn't look like it is. Gabe, that's because that's because Facebook is just like a drug. Is it? Is it a drug? Yeah. I mean, I'm well, not gonna. I'm not gonna people, implicate my my teenage me in anything here. But I'm just gonna tell you that there's nothing on Facebook that 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 actually rivals. I know what you're getting at. I know it's true. I'm being cynical. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's. I mean, Instagram is definitely more addicting because there's they're just they're doing their thing but they're partnered or i think they own facebook yeah or vice versa you're right it is a drug people mistaken. get that feedback it's addictive and people want that yeah, yeah they want those likes they want to share everything they want to just yoga i mean if you really want to feel something <laughs> get in your own feels. there are if a lot of other things feel something get in your own feels like stay away <clears throat> from the book of Facebook. Yeah. anyway it's that time again my friends well it is that time right. it's time it's time for some deep, dark secrets with John. Doom, doom, doom. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's start with our first question. I'm actually really curious of where you're from and what your favorite meal is. So we can go with, let's just say you did something really illegal um, and you are on death row. And you, have, you, you have a one last meal. What, what, was that, what would that last meal be? <laughs> yeah, I went there. I, I, I absolutely love seafood. I was joking with friends that I can, if I had to pick one 
food type, it would be oysters for all, for the rest of my life. Oh. I just love anything that comes from the sea. It's just, um, yeah, nothing super complicated, simple things, no dressing, just enjoy it, no seasoning, just enjoy it the way uh, nature made it. To the plank with wow. him then. No, no firing squad. <laughs> Give the man what he asked for. <laughs> do you like uh do you like yours uh raw or do you like them steamed oh okay i mean it's, it, you, yeah. you know you have to limit uh, your exposure to these because you know you never know what kind of food poisoning right. you can get it's not something i eat often but certainly it's um it's yeah i really enjoy it just some others are great that's awesome i find it very I find it delicious do you uh do you do um, just straight from the shell or do you do cracker and hot sauce? How do you do straight it? Straight from the shell, nothing added. Cracker and hot just a big sauce. Old, just a big Those old booger, <laughs> basically. But, but also, I, I come from, I'm originally from Lebanon. Um, Lebanon oh, has wow. this rich Mediterranean cuisine. That of yeah. Course, other, other countries around also have their own versions of it, but it's just absolutely. It's not Lebanese, though. Yeah, it's not Lebanese. <laughs> are they big? Are they big with seafood? I, I didn't think they were big with seafood. It, it is big with seafood, and it's also sort of um, you know more um, more healthy fats, more vegetarian options mm-hmm. as well. But certainly, you, I mean, the whole country is on the Mediterranean coast, so yeah. you could sit with your feet in the water. And eat from whatever they they caught that uh-huh. same day, which is delicious. And it sounds nice. One of my yeah. favorite restaurants is in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, on uh, Shore, and it's this amazing Lebanese joint. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been there in, well, since before the Great Plague of my time, anyway. Not the Great Plague. There've been many, um, <laughs> but ah, oh, yeah, I pine for some good Lebanese food. That's good stuff. Yes, I'm I'm a big fan as well. I actually have. There's one local uh, family that runs it. I've always supported them. They're just the nicest people. Their their kids help them. I mean, it's a, a whole family business, and they, everything You've is just always fresh. Every immigrant restaurant from here to Calcutta, my friend. <laughs> uh, but it's so, uh, but yeah, but you don't get that in in I the know, area that I'm yeah, in as yeah. as much as you. Yeah, it's it's just so. I don't know. They're just so down to earth. It's, it's like stuff. walking and going to a home into their home, and just I just love it. I love supporting Thank it too. It's stuff. so good. Good stuff. Oh yeah, they're just the nicest people too, and they just so down to earth and they just, you can tell they care. Nice. They put that care into their food. And, um, it's just something like I'll drive an extra 30 minutes to, and wow. spend a little extra on, on that food because it's worth it. They get from local farms and, um, it's just so good. Oh my gosh. I, like it. I can't even, now I want it. Now I want to go get it. <laughs> right? It's called, it's called fresh bites. It's really Duly good. Noted. Shut up. So, Curious, curious on the this topic to to get your guys's take. Um, but what do you guys think about um, Elon buying Twitter? Um, look, <laughs> I think that I'm just going to answer. I don't usually answer guess you know, questions ahead of guess, but like ones like these, I just had. Yeah, but, uh, it's hard for me to pay attention to what billionaires do on any given freaking day. Can I be honest with you? <laughs> like, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like that's fair, <laughs> but. Cynical. This guy is cynical. So, John, what do you think about Elon buying Twitter? Look, uh, I mean, uh, we've all been on the news, very hooked into following this story over the past three weeks. And it's fascinating on many, many fronts. Um, the ones that sort of you know, I, I, I connect with the most is trying to understand 
is can Twitter do even more than what it's doing today? What is the potential for it to keep growing in ways mm -hmm. that are interesting? What are those ways? And also around statements that Elon Musk made around, uh, you know, we want to address spam. We want to open it up more. We want to open source software. And we also want to make sure that we know who is behind all these tweets. And all of that is very profound. And we need to understand what it all means because, you know, there are use cases within Twitter that are meant to be more anonymous, right? And, you know, when you're describing atrocities and situations that are happening there, but also there's the practical realities of that. I, I worked on Google Plus for for a number of years, and it thought about also associating accounts with real identities, and that created a lot of storms. So I, I am very eager to see how is Twitter going to evolve and how mm. whether these are ideas that are being thrown in the heat of the moment or really convictions that he has over the long term. And what does it mean to the security team, the privacy team, the end user with those um, sort of with those needs coming up, would it curtail the use of Twitter? Would it expand it in other ways? And again, it's hard, hard to get a real sense from the rhetoric that is usually there at the very early stages. But I'm guessing within a few months, it starts to become more concrete. And uh, you know, all the power to uh, I mean, I hope um, Twitter grows from here and not the other way around. I I need you to. To yeah. follow me around and just combat my general cynicism because <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate all that. Um, that's that's valid. Mm -hmm. It's valid. You know, I am yeah, cynical, you, you have... but to to a limit. And uh, people sometimes are a bit surprised <laughs> because you know you're a security person. You should be a lot more paranoid about these things. No, um, some things I am paranoid about, and others I'm not so much. But here it's already a controversial topic, right? And the whole approach and sort of where that came from and understanding and then finding out about sort of the board being a little bit, um, you know, not, not necessarily working cohesively, the, its own ex-CEO complaining about the board, those kinds of airing out your dirty laundry in public. It's, it's all, you know, makes for newsworthy reading, but it doesn't tell you where it's going. And I'm interested in knowing where it's going before I have a sense of mm. what does that mean to all of us. It's a social network I consume a ton of. It's the first thing I check when I wake up. It's the last thing I do before I sleep. Because often for security, if there is any vulnerability, you'll hear about it there first, potentially. Mm -hmm. We want to be responsive to those. So I'm very eager to follow and see how it goes. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you on all those points. That's valid. Very valid. Thank you. Thank you. So what does John do when he's not starting companies and working for Google for 10 years and jumping from Snapchat? What do you do in your, your free time? What's, uh, what's something that you enjoy doing? <laughs> the, um, honestly, I, uh, I first, I uh, just uh, a month or so ago, this is, by the way, breaking news. I didn't announce it in any oh large channel, but I got married. And uh, the reason we didn't announce hey. it is not sort of to keep it private, but we're going to organize a better celebration. It's just the pandemic sort of ends a little bit. And that's been remarkably exciting. Uh, you know, on Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank, you. Thank you very Congratulations. much. Thank you. That's amazing. Thank you. Sort of, and, and first, you heard it, you heard it first yeah, on Privacy yeah, Please. Breaking news, my friends. Right people, people won't hear this for another, not, um, 
Not until next That's week. Right. Yes, perfect. And um, I also love working out. I think it, it de-stresses me at the end of a long day. It brings me a lot of joy. Um, and so I'm, I do martial arts. Um, it's sort of... Awesome. Um, what kind? Uh, what kind, if I don't mind asking? Uh, it's karate. Um, it's the Japanese style, J- Japanese Karate Association. And I've been doing it on and off since I was a kid, but it brings a great sense of community. It helps you be in the moment for one hour, a few mm-hmm. times a, a week, where you don't think about anything else, just being in the moment. And that's incredibly, I find it incredibly distressful, but also energizing. Mm. And I love tennis and skiing. And uh, so any chance I have to go do some spo- social sports, uh, I just absolutely. There is a group of InfoSec folks that get together to do a little bit of rolling. Yeah, if you don't know them, yeah, happy to. You, you, you should, yeah. <laughs> a couple of, yeah, certainly some folks in your network would know of them. Yes, 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 yes. I was going to say, yeah, we got a bunch of martial arts folks in, uh, in the network. If you're ever, if you're ever down to roll while, while we're at RSA or something. But yeah, some of the old Twitter folks, a lot of the Twitter security folks um, uh, in, in that boat. A couple of Snapchat t- folks. But yeah, it's cool. That's good stuff. It's really very funny to see folks who do security sort of um, uh, on, on the application side of things or network side of things also have interest in similar activities in the physical world i'm, yeah. I'm very impressed about it there is a great community it's interesting and yeah no, I, uh, I just personally love it I, I find that it just ends the day very very well and helps me think better same same i'm a big fan yeah. i'm a big fan agreed right on um so what is your all-time favorite movie <laughs> wow um yeah, no, it's hard. Or, or just something in your top five. You know, I think when I was growing up, I watched the the Born Identity, not the Matt Damon one, the one from the, I think it was in the eighties with Richard okay. Chamberlain, and I had read the book about it, and I was fascinated by this person who forgot who they were, but suddenly it's coming back and. Just mm-hmm. in the moment of things, you start to see you have skills you didn't have. And I found that, you know, at the time, it, it just left me with a strong impression. Now, most people haven't seen it. It's a very old movie. I didn't and know it existed. Now that you see Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. I did not know it was a remake. It was I didn't know it was a movie remake. or a two-part TV series. TV series? Okay. I'm going to go it, find it. It was the precursor, and it was really, really nice. I am going to go find fantastic it. Interesting. I didn't know By the way, that. I just call those Monday mornings when I slowly start coming back <laughs> to life and remembering <laughs> skills I had on Friday <laughs> afternoon. Like, ah, that's right. <laughs> I know how to do this. <laughs> yeah, that is, a, that is a true, though. For sure. That's a good one. Sometimes, though, uh, I will say Monday mornings, or I think the worst is when you go on vacation uh, and you come back and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot how to do everything. Facts. Big facts. <laughs> Big facts. I'm okay with That's that. Good but then it could. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. For our mental health, absolutely. I don't. Um, no doubt. Well, Jed, thank you for for coming on the show, for taking the time to talk with us. I know this was pretty long, so I we really appreciate you. Um, great conversation. I, I, I really uh, admire and uh, appreciate you. And yeah. uh, uh, thank Good you for, for taking the time to, to come thank on the show. Thank you very sure. much. It is much appreciated. Much appreciated. Thank you we, so much for having me. And sort of, Gabe, will stay in touch if you do. We will. Actually, we're going to do a couple of things. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll reach out. 
I think it'd be good to to have another one of these conversations, you know, in a few months or whenever you're ready, when when you've got some big updates for for us and you know this, this thing's happening in the world. Um, but I'll also reach out offline too, um, because th- this this problem that you're solving intrigues me so very much in so many ways. I want to discuss it with you. I equally have similar problems, right, as you might imagine. Um, but we'll talk about those things. We'll talk about those. To talk things. more yeah. and really, Cameron and Gabe, great getting to know you and thank you so right much on. for having me. As well you, sir. Be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. If you guys want to keep hearing us and supporting us, please, please, please email me at cameron.ivy at spirion.com. That's C-A-M-E-R-O-N dot I-V-E-Y at spirion, S-P-I-R-I-O-N dot com. We would love to hear from you. New topics, guests, all that good stuff. Support us. We love doing this every single week and we hope to continue. Thanks again for your support. And again, Cameron Ivy, over and out all-around decent guy. See you next week.